you want to grab your Bible, we're, we're going to be in John chapter 1 again for the most part. Uh, this week, we're continuing our series that's just entitled The Arrival. We've all heard the, the, the phrase Advent or Advent season. Advent is just a word that means arrival. And it's, and it's a season where we mark and celebrate the arrival of Christ in this, on this earth. And today, uh, we're going to continue that series and we're going to be talking about the question, what does God look like? What kind of reminds me of a story I heard one time about a, a Sunday school teacher, and they had a she had a class of uh, very small children, and and uh, there was one child was drawing a picture, and and they and the teacher asked the, the child, well, what are you drawing? And and he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, Well, I'm sorry, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the kid looked at her and said. They will, they'll, they'll know when I'm done. <laughs> so uh, today we're going to be talking about that. You know, there is a hunger inside most people to know God, to know what he's like, to know what he wants. And, and in our culture, it can get really, really confusing because everybody has their own idea about who he is and what he's like. You know, they're saying, this is God. No, this is God. No, that's God over there. Or some of them say, well, maybe you're God. Maybe that's what's going on here. But and you throw into that confusion, you throw in the fact that nobody has ever seen him and it gets even more confusing. And I know that if you've uh, been in church a long time, you say, well, wait a minute. What about Moses? Moses uh, wanted to see God. He saw God, but Moses wanted to see God's glory. And God said, you can't do that and live. So he showed Moses his back, which is figurative because God is a spirit and he has no backside. So literally what it means in Hebrew in that story is that Moses he sort of saw where God was a second ago. He saw a shadow of where he had been. And, and even that made his face light up where he scared the people of Israel. So, so uh, uh, we're just trying to figure out who God is. And, and here we are trying to figure this out. And no one has ever seen him. And everybody has an idea of who he is. So the question is, how do we know? How do we know what he's like? And I'm guessing that you're spiritual people because you're here. I'm guessing that there's something inside of you that, <coughs> excuse me, that makes you believe that there's a God. And, and that's why you're here. That's why we gather in a place like this. Well, how do we know what he's like? How do we know what he likes? How do we know what he doesn't like? What pleases him? What doesn't please him? Because here's the thing. We ask that question because if there is a God, we want to be on his good side, right? I mean, I don't think there's anybody that says, I believe in God and I want to be his enemy. You know, I don't think anybody's doing that. I think for the most part, you want to be friends with the creator of all things. So how do we know? How can we see? And it is this question that brings us back to Jesus. So let's go. John chapter one, starting in verse 14. It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, that first phrase, and the word became flesh, carries an awful lot of weight for us because when you go back and look at verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's telling us God came in the flesh. 
And this holds some huge, huge ramifications for our question, how do we know God? How do we know what pleases Him? How do we know what stirs His heart? How do we know what He likes? How do we know what He doesn't like? How do we know how He behaves? How do we know God? Well, according to John chapter 1, what we know for sure is God is not playing some kind of cosmic game of hide-and-go-seek with us. He didn't create the universe, uh, set the world in motion, and then go hide out behind Mars somewhere. Instead, it says that that he put on flesh and blood. And here's where it gets really, really interesting. In verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, we, we read that phrase, the phrase made His dwelling. It, it, it's not very interesting to us in English, but, it, but it's a very, very interesting phrase because in the Greek, it means literally to live in a tent or to pitch a tent. Now, when, when we read this text, oftentimes people read this and, they, and we have this understanding that, that it means to, that he pitched a tent among us and, and, and we look at it with a Western mindset. And here's the thing about a Western mindset. We don't live in tents, do we? Right? I mean, that's not a quick question, trick question. Some of you are like, I don't know if I should answer that. We don't, we don't live in tents, right? Right. It's, it, you, you, might, you might live in the ghetto, but you're probably not living in a tent. Right. And if you are living in a tent, let us know. We'll do everything we can to help you get out of the tent. Uh, but but, you know, maybe you read this or I've read it in the past and I thought, OK, you know, we don't spend considerable amounts of time in tents. And, you know, we go camping and might be there for a few days, but we don't stay there for any length of time. So it's easy to read this and say to ourselves that, that it's talking about the temporary nature of the life of Christ as a human being on earth. You know, 33 years he, he is here, three years of it in ministry, then he dies, rises from the grave and ascends. And, and, it's, and we sometimes read it like that. But here's the thing. When I started looking at how this word is used in other places in Scripture, that whole idea of it meaning temporary dwelling just started to unravel. Specifically, the book of Revelation teaches that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it teaches us that the dwelling place of God will be among men. Now, when, the, when Revelation was speaking of the dwelling place of God, the book, the book of Revelation uses the very same word that John uses in, in John 1.14, which means to live in a tent or to pitch a tent. So in Revelation, it's obvious he is not speaking about any limited space of time. He's talking about dwelling with men forever. So that has nothing to do with the meaning behind the word. So why is this word used here in John chapter 1? Because here's the thing. There are no accidents and no random acts in Scripture ever. All scripture is God breathed, which means every word is in the place where it's, uh, in which it's supposed to be, and it's there on purpose. So here's the question. What is God trying to teach us today by saying that God became flesh and pitched a tent in your neighborhood? Okay, let me, let me tell you what I think. I'll just explain it and illustrate it like this. Let's say that you came out to Crawford Drive and and you built a house next to my house. And, and let's say you, you got some coin, you know, you got a, you, you've got a little bank going on behind you. And so you, you build this monstrosity of a house. You know, it, it just, I mean, it just dwarfs 
all of, uh, all of us peons houses, you know, around you and, you, and you've got this fourth story window that you, so, so you can look down and see what's going on in our backyards. And I mean, your house is just huge. And let's just say, let's say around that house, you built this 12 foot tall privacy fence. And, and then let's just say that you're a really nervous person and you, you strung up some razor wire on top of your privacy fence. And then inside you let loose a couple of ferocious dogs and you put security cameras all over the place to make sure you can keep up with what's going on all over your property. And, and you install a retinal scanner uh, uh, to your gate of your house and, and you, have a mo- you put a moat around your house flowing with lava. Okay, are we, are we getting the picture here or do I need to keep going? So you, you build this inaccessible mansion. Now, here's the thing. By building that mansion, that inaccessible mansion, you are teaching and speaking to your neighbors. And the message is not, hey, why don't you bring over a plate of cookies? Right? The message is, leave us alone. The message is, I do not want to interact with you. Stay away or die. That's the message. We might see you coming and going but, uh, uh, from your house, but even if you're on your front porch, you, you built this security system to keep me out. So, so, so you built this, and you've, the message is, stay away. I don't want to interact with you. Now, let's say that instead of building that house, you buy the property and you just throw up a tent in the middle of the yard. Well, I'm guessing that eventually you're going to knock on my door and ask to use my bathroom. Now, not all of the time, but at least half the time. Are you, are you tracking with me? Some, you'll get that later. So anyway, I'm guessing that when it gets really, really, really cold outside, that you're going to want to come into my house and you're going to warm up a little bit. I'm guessing that in the middle of July, when it gets really, really, really hot out there, you might want to come into the air-conditioned environment of my house and drink some sweet tea or some kind of ice-cold beverage with me. I'm guessing that when you get bored or lonely, which is a lot because you live in a tent, uh, that you're going to want to come hang out. So I'm guessing that I would be seeing you all the time. And when I, when I go to, out to get my mail, uh, th- there you would be because where else are you going to go? Because you live in a tent in the middle of, a, of the, your yard. And I, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, you're, you're going to be sitting in your yard all the time, sitting on the ground. When I mow my lawn, there you are. When I wash my car, there you are. When I come and go, there you are. It seems if instead of building a mansion, you built a tent, there would be a lot of interaction between us. So could it be that God is furthering the lesson that he's not playing some cosmic game of hide-and-go-seek, could it be that God wants to be known by you, so, therefore, he pitches a tent in your backyard? The Word became flesh and pitched a tent in our backyard. You, You see, here's the thing. This is why it's such a big deal that Jesus came into the flesh, that he pitched this tent of flesh, and he came and lived among us, Everything we could ever know about God is found in Jesus because Jesus is God. It's what separates us from uh, what other religions believe. We we, We don't follow a prophet or a great man or a great teacher. We follow God in the flesh. We talked about that some last week. The Word became flesh and pitched a tent in our backyard. 
All, all, all that, we, that we could ever want to know about God's character, about what he likes, about what he doesn't like, about what pleases him, what doesn't please him, all of that is found in Jesus. That's what Colossians means when it says the Son is the image of the invisible God. So when you study the life of Christ, you learn about the character and nature of God. You learn about the life and the heart of God. When you hear Jesus teach, you're hearing God teach. When you get to know what Jesus is like, you get to know what God is like. And all of that brings us to a, a million dollar question. And this is the real question we have to ask ourselves. What do we know about God because of Jesus that we so desperately need to know? What is it that he teaches us? And, and the list of things that we learn from looking at Jesus, the, the list of things we learn about God is huge. For example, what does the woman at the well teach us about the character of God? I mean, here is a woman who has lived so badly and is of such ill repute that she's been kicked out. She has been ostracized from a pagan culture. All right? Are you tracking me? Let me put it at bringing it in the real world. She got kicked out of Vegas. All right? Now you know what we're talking about, right? She, I mean, how do you live in such a way that Vegas goes, ah, oh, you're nasty. Get out of here. You know, how, how do you do that? Uh, uh, Jesus finds this woman with a sullied repu reputation at the well who is currently at that moment exchanging sex for rent and he engages her with love and with kindness. He says to her, hey, would you share a drink of water with me? And they drink and he says, oh, that water is good, isn't it? But there's water that's available that'll clean your soul. And she says, why would you even talk to me? You're a Jew, you're a man, you're a rabbi. What does it teach us about God that Jesus took time to drink water with a sexually immoral woman? What does it say about God that Jesus loved this woman? Or what do we learn about God through Jesus' interaction with the disciples? I mean, can you, can you ever question the patience of God? I, I mean, can you name me one moment where these guys, the disciples, get it right? And you, you can, I'm sure. One, you can name one, uh, you know, where Jesus, where Peter has this great confession of who Jesus is. And, and Jesus looks at him, though, and says, Blessed are you, Peter, for God has revealed this to you. And then like seven verses later, Peter uh, gets it wrong. And Jesus is like, Peter, you're the devil. Get behind me, Satan. So, so Peter got it right for seven verses. But they constantly misunderstood. They constantly didn't believe. It was constantly this process of them just not getting what Jesus is trying to say. Even when he was very plain and explicit, the Bible says that from a certain point in time and on, he went, he specifically told them how he was going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he's going to rise again. And they still didn't get it. So this is a visible picture of the patience of God. In fact, over and over and over again, it seems to me that, that God's preference is to choose the nobodies. Not, not the spiritually elite, but the nobodies. You know, Peter and John, they were fishing with their dads. And according to what we know about first century Jewish history, that means that they were not the cream of the crop in the Jewish educational system. It means that somewhere along the way, the higher-ups in the Jewish educational system said, you are not smart enough, you are not good enough, go fish with your dad, and that's how you can help the nation. 
And Jesus walks up and says, oh, you guys aren't the educated? You're not the spiritually elite? You're the nobodies? Well, then come follow me. You're my kind of men. What does it show us about God that the nobodies, the anybodies, not the spiritual elite, seem to be Jesus' preference? What, what do his interactions with the Pharisees teach us about God? It, it seems that, that God has little patience for the religious, but he loves the broken and contrite in spirit. He, he looks at the Pharisees, this ruling religious party, and he calls them a brood of vipers. And I don't know, I, just a hunch, but I don't think they like that. I'm thinking they probably did. I don't think they, were, they heard Jesus call him a brood of vipers. I don't think they looked at him and said, oh, thanks, buddy. You've you got nice eyes, too. Thanks. I don't think that's how it went. It was a slam. But what does it teach about God that Jesus seemed to be so frustrated with the religious, but he was drawn to those who were genuinely seeking him? Or how about this one? This, this is one of my favorites. What does it teach us about God that children loved Jesus. I don't know how much you've interacted with children, but here's what I have observed. They don't tend to be drawn toward bitter, angry, hostile people, right? They don't go, hey, you know, that guy could snap at any second and beat me. I love him. Can I go play at his house? I don't, that's not what happens. In fact, for children to be drawn to an adult, there has to be an element of gentleness, and, and, and some would look at me and, and, and call me crazy, but I think there has to be an element of, dare I say, fun. You know, some would look at me and call me a heretic, you know, sacrilege. Jesus never smiled. If he did, it was only when he was destroying stuff. You know, it was like, no. But, but here's the thing. Two times in the New Testament, he walks into, his, into a town and children just ambush him. And on one of those occasions, the disciples were like, get away from him. Get away, get away, get away. Kids, get away from Jesus. He's too important. Move, move out of the way. And Jesus stopped them all in the middle of that and said, why don't, why don't you let them come and why don't you get away from me a little bit and let me play with these kids because here's the deal unless you come to me like one of these you're never going to come so go on Peter and, and take John and the boys with you you know that's how I pictured in my mind what does it say about God that Jesus tenderly received children and that they were drawn to him now I could talk about this stuff all day because the thing is everything in Jesus's life the life of Jesus points back to the Father. And there's something we learn about the Father when we see how Jesus interacts with different situations, with different circumstances, and with different people. Jesus' life shows us what God is like, it shows us what pleases Him, and it shows us what displeases Him. And you have all of these beautiful lessons, but the text that we're in is going to say that specifically here that Jesus' life points to two things in particular that we want to look at today. One of them we're just going to spend just a brief moment on. The other one we're going to spend a little bit more time on. But let's look at verse 14 again. It says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look down at verse 17 because it's going to repeat Part of that verse, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the text is going to say, 
that the life of Jesus pointed back to specific attributes of God that we should know, that we should understand, that we should get. And he specifically mentions these two. The first one I want us to see is this element of truth. Truth. Jesus said that Jesus, excuse me, Jesus, by his life, by his power over all things that, that are created, by his ability to command even demons, points us to God as to what is true at the deepest levels of the universe. And that's a wildly unpopular idea in our culture. We hear people say things like, well, no, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Or somebody say, there's no such thing as one absolute truth. But the problem is that statement in itself is a claim to a singular truth. Right? Somebody says there's no absolute truth. I always ask, well, is that absolutely true? Because if what they said is absolutely true, then the statement itself is self-refuting. So, I, I mean, just it's impossible to say that there's no such thing as truth because that to say that, it would have to be true. So, we know there is an ultimate reality. And that ultimate reality of the creator of all things woven in and through all things, and we know him through Christ God in the flesh. But we're not, we're not going to spend much time on that. But the second one that he mentions here is even bigger than truth. And I know for a lot of people, especially people who see the world in black and white, that's a really scary thing. You say, bigger than truth? What could be bigger than truth? How is that possible? Well, let me tell you something. Truth is big. Truth is huge. But truth is there to lead us to something else. Truth is there. The truth is, I'm a sinner the truth is I deserve death, but that truth is there to lead me to something greater, which is grace. Grace. Grace is, very simply put, and you've heard this, the unmerited favor of God towards sinners. And, and, you, and you want to hear something crazy? Here's the part we struggle with. Kind of touched on it in our prayer time a little bit. That means that God loves you Right now. Right now. Look, look at me, because this is huge. Grace means that God loves you right now. Now, you have to follow me here, because they're, they're, uh, these are the chains that so, in which so many of us walk. But he, here's what I'm saying, and we've talked about this a long time ago, but it, he does not, Jesus does not merely love some future version of you. You tracking with me on that? You know, I mean, I know you can go, oh man, I'm, I'm just, just such a mess right now. But, but listen, there, there are all kinds of beautiful pictures that God has painted on the canvas of creation to teach us that he loves us now, to teach you that he loves you now. Like, like here's a great one. I, I, I've, I'm telling you, I don't think I have learned outside of the scripture itself. I have, I have not learned. There's not any part of my life that has taught me more about God than being a dad. There's something about that because here's the, it's something painted on creation. You know, when, when my daughters were really, really little, we had to change a lot of diapers and I don't care who you are. You can fake it, but I'm just here to tell you that can just get plain nasty. Can I get an Amen. You know, I mean, let's be honest. It's just, it's nasty. You got to change the diaper. And, and then only that, we had to dress them because they couldn't even dress themselves. Th then they, you know, because 
I, I don't remember, you know, I don't know that I ever did this as a little boy, but, but I had these little girls and they, they would not leave their clothes on. They would, and, and they'd pull them off and we'd have to dress them over and over and over and over again. But can I tell you something? Here's the thing I want you to see in this. Love for my daughters was not something that was reserved for when they could finally go in the toilet, toilet and dress themselves. I mean, love was there even though they brought nothing to the table. They did no chores. They fixed nothing. They couldn't tell me I was a good dad. They, they couldn't encourage me. They, all they did was they pooped and they slept and they played with their toys. They got into things that, they, that we didn't want them getting into. And they got cranky and communication was severely limited because they only knew a few words. But here's the deal. I was and I still am crazy in love with them. It's not some future happening. I love them fully in the moment. I love them fully the first time I held them in my arms. Even before they were born, I love them fully. I love them partially because I could see what was in them. And I had such hope of what they might be able to do with the breath that Christ has given to them. I, I, don't, I don't think that that experience is some random picture. I believe that God picked up his brushes and he painted on the canvas of creation this relationship so that we could see, so that we could get it, so that we can understand his love for us. And if we ever get this, it will set our souls free. Grace is the message of Jesus. Grace. You know, the Bible says a woman walks in while Jesus is eating dinner at a Pharisee's house and and and. This woman lets down her hair and she just sobs on the feet, uh, on his feet of Jesus and starts wiping the dirt off of his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee who is there hosting the dinner said to himself, well, if this Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman th th this is and there's no way he would let her touch him. And Jesus, knowing what he was thinking, said, she loves this. Because she has been forgiven so much. And he went on and he said to him, listen, she's the hero in this story. And forever you're going to be remembered as the moron. Now, that's a fair paraphrase. If you try to look up moron in the back of your Bible, you're not going to find it there. But that's still the story. Another woman was caught in the, in the act of adultery. And she was dragged naked in all of her shame. And thrown at the feet of Jesus. And they said, Rabbi, the Mosaic law says she should be killed by pelting her with rocks until she dies. So what do you say? Now don't, don't miss this. According to the law, she was guilty. She was caught in the act. She was guilty. What do you say, Rabbi? Well, I say that the one who hasn't messed up, the one who hasn't missed the mark, the one who hasn't sinned, you throw the first rock. And oldest to youngest, because the truth is that life will eventually beat the pride out of you. Oldest to youngest, they drop their rocks to walk away. Grace means that God loves you now, not some future version of you. And, and I know that that's been twisted. I know there's been people that say, oh yeah, God loves me now, so I don't have to change. No, no, you're missing the point. He loves you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like that. 
God loves you now, not just some future version. Now. I'm here to tell you, quit trying to earn it. It's yours. Quit trying to earn it. My daughters could never earn my love. There's this really, really beautiful moment when your heart finally breaks and you realize that you cannot earn God's love. I mean, it really is a really beautiful moment. I don't know if your experience was like mine, you know, but I remember when I got saved, when I really finally met Jesus. I grew up in church, but I didn't really meet him until I was a little bit later in my life, in my teenage years. But, but I got saved, and, and here's what happened. You know, pretty much within a matter of weeks, a couple, three weeks, I was not, not a, you know, on a piece of paper, but I was sort of presented with this holy checklist of what you have to do and would not do as a Christian. You know, well, you, you got to read your Bible. You have to buy, you know, my utmost for his highest. You got to have that and, you, and read that. And you have to learn to play acoustic guitar so you can lead and worship and youth and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, you, oh, you can't watch R-rated movies unless Jesus is in them. Then it's okay. You know, and so, and it could go on and on and on. But, but here's what I found. You know, we, and those are just silly things, but we have this list of things that, that we say, well, this is what it means to be a Christian. And, and listen, uh, 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 well, we'll get back to that in a minute. But, but, but here's what I found. I found in my life that the better I got at keeping the list, the more miserable my soul became. It started out so pure and beautiful, just being forgiven and, and, and enjoying the presence of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, all of that got traded in for what? For a set of do, religious do's and don'ts. And I'm here to tell you that's a horrible, horrible exchange. For what? For the opportunity to conform to what the religious police thought that I should, should say and, and do? That's a horrible exchange. That's trading intimacy with Christ for a list of rules. It's not the rules that make us acceptable to Jesus. Following Jesus is not some moral standard to attain. It is a relationship with Him. And in that relationship with Him, He works out all of those things. He works out all of the do's and don'ts. He shows you how to say yes to godliness and no to ungodliness. He's the one that begins to change you. The list does not do that. Those things get worked out as we walk with Jesus, but we keep trying to skip the walking with Jesus part. Can't tell you how many people I meet who are trying to skip the relational aspect of following Jesus and just trying to follow a list and look the right way and act the right way and present this finished product. And he, I'm here to tell you, after trying that in my life, that is weighty and it is miserable, isn't it? And here's the funny thing. 41 years in to this thing, this relationship with Jesus and, and countless books read, I am no more able to cognitively explain, explain grace than I was that first moment when my heart experienced it. I mean, I can give you a description of it. I can say some things, but it is so beyond my human ability to really explain to you. But, but maybe, maybe that's the point. Here's what I'm thinking. Maybe God doesn't care if you can explain grace. Maybe instead of merely understanding grace, God wants you to experience it. Maybe instead of being able to draw a graph and show how it all works, we can walk in it in, a, in, a, in, a, in our pile of brokenness. We can walk in His grace and let Him change us. Because 
This changes how we live. This means we don't pick at stuff anymore. It means that, that petty arguments are that. They're just petty arguments, you know? I mean, that's what most arguments in churches get started over is the list of do's and don'ts. I mean, churches have split over foolish things like the color of carpet. As if God's up in heaven saying, red, I want red. <laughs> it's grace. It's grace. And grace, as we know from Paul, grace, the grace of God does not excuse us. It doesn't give us license to sin. Because the, Paul wrote, he said, where, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And then the next verse he says, does this mean we should go on sinning? Does this mean we should sin it up so we can get more and more grace? And he says, God forbid. He's saying, that's foolish. No, that's not the point. Grace is that in the middle of that sin, in the middle of that brokenness, he loves us fully. We cannot earn that love. And because of what Jesus did at the cross, he gives us a brand new start. And he says, now because of my grace, you can walk outside of these things. You don't have to be chained to your sin anymore. That's grace. So there's this God to be known. And he's not playing hide and go seek with you. He has pitched his tent in your backyard so that you might see that he is true. And that, so that you might see his grace. So that you would believe that he loves you now. And I know there's some here, maybe watching on the live stream, you don't know Jesus and maybe you're just sort of checking it out and I'm hoping that I'm clarifying some things for you because I'm afraid maybe that you've seen some of the distortions within the church and there are a lot of weird things out there in the church world, aren't there? A lot of strange things and we, we're more aware of them and more exposed to those things than ever before. There are a lot of distortions within the church and maybe, maybe you're one of those people that are thinking about Jesus and you're looking at some of the Christians and you're thinking, man, these guys are just a freak show. You know, and, and, and listen, honestly, to some extent we are. I mean, we're very weird. We, we do believe in the unseen. We do believe in the spirit world. We do believe in these things. We, we do at times wear odd t-shirts. We do put on, you know, horrible cliches on our bumper stickers and stuff. And I apologize for that. I can't do anything about that. But, but, but then, so that, you, that might be you, you watching this and listening to this. But then I think here's the thing. I think there's a, maybe even a larger group here today who have come into that, to that place where, where you believe in Jesus, but you're, you're still just weighted down trying to earn what's free. And come on, isn't, isn't that just exhausting? Maybe instead of leaving here today promising to do better, maybe we can finally admit that we cannot do better. That's a really great place to start. Because I'm guessing that it's, for many of us, it's been several years now of, of you committing to do better only to end up getting worse. Maybe that's the place we start. Because when we admit that we can't do better, when we admit that we can't earn it, then we begin to experience grace. Because we realize He still loves me. He loves me more than I can ever comprehend. So with all that said, as usual, as I said last week, we are 
full speed ahead into Christmas. And here's my, I guess this is the same message that I've been saying the last two weeks. Don't get sucked into the holiday hype this year. I mean, listen, we all know it's true. You have relatives coming to your house that you don't like. (laughs) You don't really want to see, but but they're going to be there. You have a thousand things that you need to do. You haven't finished buying gifts and some men haven't even started buying gifts yet. Uh, you know, I mean, I get it. I get it's busy. I get it. There's the hustle and bustle. But just don't get sucked into all of that. Because here's what we have to remember at Christmas. And that is that, that there are much bigger things going on. There is such beautiful depth to be pondered if we don't get sucked into the hype uh, and the hustle and bustle of Christmas, that there's so much beauty and depth here. If we will take time to dive in, if we'll take time to get into the Word, if we'll take time to just, just experience that beautiful grace that comes in a personal relationship with Jesus, if we'll take time to remember that it's not about the trees and the presents, it's not even about the kids opening their presents, it's about Jesus. And that he shows us what God looks like. And it is a beautiful, beautiful picture. There is a God who has made himself known. And he loves you now. That's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in here today and for those that are watching in the live stream. And and Lord, I I so love our time together. And and I pray, Lord, for those here today who who might might not know you, those that are watching online that might not know you. I pray that today, God, that through something maybe I've said or somehow that you would just arouse in their hearts a curiosity about you and not about church, Lord. We, the church is important. Being together, being with the family of God is, is vital to us. But God, it's about Jesus. So I pray you would arouse a curiosity in them and that you would stir in their souls a, a desire to really know you. And Father, I pray for so many that, that, are, that are so bound up in doing... the. They're so bound up in doing that they've forgotten. They've never been able to get to the being part. I pray today that we would be tired enough to finally go, okay, I'm done. I'm done trying to earn your love, God. I'm done trying to play the checklist game. I'm ready to have a real relationship with you and let you change me from the inside out. And God, I pray this week that with every Christmas light we pass and with every party we we head to and every carol we hear or, or, or we might sing, I pray, God, that we might be reminded that you chose not to play hide and go seek with us, but rather you put on flesh and blood and you pitched a tent in our backyard so that we might see you, experience you, interact with you, know you. And and God, the more we come to know you, the more we see that you are true. And the more we see that you are full of grace. I pray that you would write those things on our hearts, Lord. 
Write those things in our hearts this Christmas. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I don't know where you are. I'm easy to fool. I tend to, I like to think the best about people and so I'm easy to fool. But maybe there's somebody here who would say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. I have been playing the game. I've been keeping the checklist, but there's really no relationship between me and Jesus. And I want to change. I'm exhausted from trying to keep up the appearance. I just want to know Jesus. If that's you this morning, would you just slip your hand up? Is there anybody I can pray with you? Yes, yes, yes. Several hands. Anybody else? Maybe you're online. You can just say, pray for me. Father, you see our hearts, those that raise their hands. Maybe some that needed to raise their hands, but just were so exhausted that they just can't even go through that. I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them. That, Lord, that they would They would get lost in relationship with you. And in that relationship, you would change them from the inside out. Change our hearts. Change our desires. Change the way we think. Change us, oh God. But Lord, we we know that we can't put on holiness on the outside and let it sink in. It has to be something you start on the inside that works its way out. I pray, God, that you would help us not only to rejoice in your truth, which we should do, But God, that we should also relish your grace because your truth leads us to your grace. So Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to walk in your grace and to be pictures of your grace, to share your grace. Because God, there, there are a lot of people we know, a lot of friends, a lot of family. They don't get it. They don't understand how you love. I pray God that you'd help us to show them. Help us to show them Jesus so that they can know they can know you in the way that we do. And we thank you for all of these things. And God, I pray that you would keep your hand upon us as we leave this place. Just help us, God, not to get caught up in the hype and the hustle. But God, we would, we would know that you are, you have made yourself known, that you love us. And we don't have to earn that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.